Father, we come before you and we thank you that you sent your son. And Jesus, we thank you that you came. You not only came, but you lived a sinless life. You wrapped your deity in humanity. You were born of a virgin. You never sinned. And at the end of your life, you gave your life up for us. The Alpha and Omega, that is who you are. And yet you would choose to take our sin upon yourself so that we could live. For that we are eternally thankful. And we thank you that after you died, that because you'd never sinned three days later, you were raised to life again. And we thank you that upon your ascension, Spirit of God, you are with us. We're about to take a look at your word this morning. We can't understand it without you. So Spirit of God, may you guide us to the understanding of your word today. May you open our hearts and minds to its truth. For we ask this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. We've been going through the book of Acts. And uh, a few weeks ago I looked at Acts 13 and 14. The differences in the uh, gospel presentation that Paul offers to those that are Jews and God-fearing Greeks who had, in essence, become Jewish. And then in Acts 14, uh, taking a look at how when he's uh, with an, another entirely different group of people, how, how as he's with them, uh, and they're thinking that he and Barnabas are Zeus and Hermes, how his gospel presentation with the same gospel is presented in a different way. And I, I think, and I suggested it then, that we're likely in a day where we have seen a shift in our culture. We've modified the gospel over the, not the gospel, we modified the presentation of the gospel over the years, the same gospel. But we're likely in a shift, an unprecedented shift like we've never seen before in our culture. We can no longer take for granted anything we think anyone knows about God. And then we jumped into Acts 15, and Acts 15 is about the Jerusalem Council. Today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk through the rest of Acts 15, but I'm not going to exegete it like I normally do. It's what I did last Sunday. I'm going to walk through the passage and more offer comments on ways we navigate doctrinal disputes today. You may remember from the first 22 verses or so of Acts chapter 15 that certain people had come from Judea to Antioch. They were saying that you need to be circumcised and you need to keep the law of Moses. Why this is occurring is because in the initial chapters of Acts, you see large numbers of people coming to faith in Christ, day of Pentecost, others following, and it's predominantly Jewish people who would have had a huge value on the Old Testament. And as these people are coming to faith in Christ and they're understanding the value uh, of who Christ is, and now they're still gathering, this is where you find the apostles, they're still gathering at the local synagogues and at the temple. And as they're gathering at the local synagogues and the temples, they're still declaring who Jesus is. And now the people that are gathering, the Jewish people, are reading the Bible, which they have, the Old Testament only, of course. And as they're going through it, they're like, oh yeah, messianic promise, messianic promise, messianic promise. They're now seeing Jesus through all of the Old Testament, like they'd never seen before. But then... We had, later in Acts, the Gentile Pentecost, a number of Gentiles coming to faith who weren't God-fearing. They're uncircumcised, and they know nothing of the Bible. They know nothing of the Bible. Zero. And so because of that, a number of people are saying, well, 
we know that the sign of the old covenant was circumcision. So if you're really going to be a follower of Jesus, who was also Jewish, you need to be circumcised and you need to follow the law of Moses. So they gather a council in the beginning of, of Acts 15. Now this is important. This is a unique council, this Jerusalem council. It's made up of apostles and elders. There'll never be a council like this again. There'll never be a gathering of the apostles like they were. And we see different apostles speaking through the text that we read last week. The other thing that is important to remember is the canon of scripture is not yet complete. And so the scripture is not yet complete. All they have is the Old Testament. And likely they have, I would say, James. I actually think James is written earlier. And Galatians. I always date Galatians earlier than the Jerusalem Council because Paul addresses some of these issues in the first chapter of a couple of chapters of Galatians, and he doesn't mention the Jerusalem Council. So I, I think, I explained this last week, that what happens is Paul wrote the letters to the Galatians in that he's talking about some of these men who've gone astray and are requiring circumcision. They hear the letter as it's circulating through the Galatian churches. They're upset, and now they go to Antioch to stir up trouble. And the Jerusalem Council is now a response to that. What do we do when people are saying that to be saved, you need to be circumcised, and to be saved, you also need to follow the law of Moses? There were three things that were important to the Jerusalem Council. They looked at the evidence of God's work among the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit had saved them. They looked at the work of the Holy Spirit and trusted his guidance. And they looked at scripture. The book of Amos was quoted. And they basically, because of their concern for the gospel and its purity, that's verse 11, gave four recommendations, but really it's three kind of ones A and B, right? To avoid food associated with idols, to avoid sexual immorality, because most of them wouldn't have read Leviticus 18. I know when I mentioned this last week, a whole bunch of you went and read Leviticus 18. I was proud of you. You came and talked to me about that and said, you didn't know Leviticus 18 said that you shouldn't have sex with your grandchildren. It's there, right in the Bible. Right? There's a whole bunch of stuff in Leviticus 18 and they wouldn't have known this. And the Gospels aren't written yet. And so because the Gospels aren't written yet, all they had was what Levitical I was talking about. And then lastly, it was about food that wasn't properly drained from its blood. Because you weren't to eat food with its life blood in it. You find that in uh, uh, Genesis 9 and then through Levitical law. Uh, or was killed properly. So that's where we found ourselves last week. And I want to read Acts 15 beginning at verse 22. I'm going to read right to the end of the chapter and into a little bit of chapter 16. Then the apostles and elders in the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They also chose Judas and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter to the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some of you went out uh, from us without our authorization and disturb you. That's sorry, we, we heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. 
So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for it and for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of God, the word of the Lord. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and they had, and sorry, had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came to Derb and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in number, sorry, in the faith, and they grew daily in number. That is the word of the Lord. The battle today is for the Bible. I heard Don Carson say that a number of years ago, theologian I greatly respect, when a group of us were having a conversation and said, what is on the horizon for Christians? And he said the battle will be for the Bible. I've preached numerous sermons on scripture, I'll do one again later in the year, on how we can believe that the word of God is authoritative, but the word of God is being torn at today. Higher criticism would tell you that you can't trust the Bible. People would say things, for example, I'll read a, a passage a little later, I'll reference it from Isaiah 44 and 45, where in Isaiah, God says he's the only God, there is no God like him. There's no God like him because he knows the past. There's no God like him because he knows the future. While Isaiah is writing this, the Assyrians are coming to occupy the northern kingdom. And then the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to take the southern kingdom into exile. And then after 70 years, the southern kingdom's going to come back. And in that passage twice, Isaiah names Cyrus as the person who's going to be used of God to bring God's people back from exile. He names him 100 years before his birth. He's going to be the Persian king. And so that's why some people who debate the Bible would say, well, there had to be like two Isaiahs or three. Because there's no way Isaiah could have known this. Now, that's ironic because it's found in a passage where God says, I know the past and I know the future. And I'm going to tell you who's going to come to rescue you from Babylon and bring you back one day. And he gives his name. And people say, well, impossible. And I'm like, do you even read the text this is found in? God's declaring his knowledge of the future. And you're saying this isn't possible? Like, can you even be saved? And so the battle is for the Bible. The battle belongs here. God has spoken. It's a glorious thing, isn't it? God not only created, but God has spoken. And 
What would you know about God if you didn't have the Bible? I mean, Scripture tells us that there's some things you could know when you look at the world around us about his insurmountable power. But what would you know about demons and angels? Nothing. What would you know about salvation in Christ? Nothing. What would you know about the role of the Holy Spirit? Nothing. You take away this book, and what do you know about our faith? Virtually nothing. Virtually nothing. We're people of a book because God has spoken. Two quotes really quickly. I, you've heard me use these before. Milliard Erickson, theologian I, I respect, said this. By the authority of the Bible, and speaking of biblical authority, we mean that the Bible, as the expression of God's will to us, possesses the right supremely to define what we are to believe and how we are to conduct ourselves. Did you hear that? The Bible has the right to tell us what we believe and how we conduct ourselves. I love this quote. This is G.I. Packer. The Christian principle of biblical authority means, on the one hand, that God purposes to direct, note again, the belief and behavior of his people through the revealed truth set out or set forth in Holy Scripture. On the other hand, it means that all of our ideas about God should be measured, tested, and where necessary, corrected and enlarged by reference to biblical teaching. That is a great quote. But we live in a day where this isn't happening. In fact, many churches are no longer respecting biblical authority. I talked about this last week when I talked about universalism. Talked about people's views on same-sex attraction. I'm going to get into more of this later today. And numerous other things. Issues where the Bible has clearly spoken, and people are saying, yeah, really? Right? And then some people will come up with things and say, well, you know, all I want is to trust what Jesus said. I remember being in this conversation with someone. I shared this last week. And then I said to them, well, let's look at what Jesus said. Because I took them to Luke. I was preaching through Luke. And knew Jesus talked about judgment all through Luke. And they looked at me and said, well, maybe not everything we think Jesus said. How do we know Jesus actually said that? And you become, you're in a very dangerous place where 2,000 years later, you think you can know what Jesus said and didn't say. You can determine what he actually said and didn't say. You can determine whether or not this should be in the epistle to Hebrews or shouldn't be in it. You land in an incredibly dangerous place when you do that. But it doesn't make it easy, right? What's made this so hard today? Well, we hear Christ's call to unity, and people make it paramount. And they make it paramount as if unity is the number one thing Christians are called to. And that's not true. What is the number one thing Christians are called to? No. 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 The glory of God. All through scripture. The number one thing Christians are called to is the glory of God. Through the Great Commission. Through loving one another. But the number one thing Christians are called to, unashamedly, through all of Scripture, is the glory of God. And what unites us as Christians is common doctrine. What unites us as Christians is common doctrine. Why, when I formed True City, did we not welcome in the Mormons or the Christadelphians? Right? I was one of the two founders. Did we not welcome in uh, uh, other groups like that? The Unitarian Church came and talked to us about being a part of it. Why not? Because they can't sign off their, on, on creedal statements that we adhere to, even though they would call themselves Christians. 
And so unity is talked about as if it's paramount, but it's not. The glory of God is. Number two, it says also hard because these are brothers and sisters in Christ. And sometimes I feel like, who am I to correct them? Who am I to engage in this conversation? Who am I to be able to talk like this? And then more so, they're even our friends. And so these are friends of ours that we love and care for, and now we're going to have dinner with them, and we're going to struggle with what this looks like. I mean, I've had dinner with numbers of people that have struggled with some of this stuff or been in my backyard for you know, barbecues or whatever, and, and we're engaged in these conversations, and they've really shifted in what they believe, and we're friends. Like, we hang out. We enjoy each other's company. But I think they've erred in what they think. And because we're often a non-confrontational pe- person, we're like, does this really matter? And because the world has shifted in its ideologies on so many issues, what it believes about the sanctity of life, what it believes about marriage, what it believes about so many things, we shift. And so then we need to navigate this day. How do we do it? Well, Al Mohler, a number of years ago, wrote a theory in the 90s. It's one that has been used by most of Christendom since that time. It's the triage theory where he talked about three orders, right? First, second, and third order. And he started to prioritize what's first order, what's second order, what's third order. That served his first season, but it hasn't anymore. And then Gavin Ortland recently wrote a book, um, Finding the Right Hills to Die On. And he says the three orders don't serve us well. He created a four-ranked doctrine theory. And so he tried to create language for that. And, and again, the language often is unsatisfactory because three challenges have emerged. Some people who are shifting in their views are saying, well, I can still sign the Apostles' Creed. But the Apostles' Creed wasn't set out. It wasn't established to deal with what we're dealing with today. They'll appeal to unity and say, Dwayne, you're the one who needs to be disciplined because you're sinning because you're creating disunity. You're splitting churches apart. Is that true? And then they'll call some of these things disputable matters. So finding the right language is so important. I don't know, it was 12 years ago, maybe before the, before the twins were born, I went to buy the bike that I cycle on and uh, went to sport check to buy the bike. Some eight-year-old kid was there, and I tried one bike. You guys have heard this, some of you. I just kind of stepped around the store, and he was like, sir, it was a really thin bike, like a road bike. He was like, let's find something more suitable for the strength of your frame. I was like, wow, that was the nicest way anyone has ever said, I'm heavy to me, ever. And, uh, and his language, I, I mean, I, I wanted to, you weren't allowed to tip at Sports Trip, I want to give him a tip. And then this week, I'm working out at the gym, and I've done my set, uh, you know, on this one machine, and I went to take the weights off, and two guys were standing there waiting for me, and one looked like he was Thor. I thought he was possibly Asgardian. And when I went to take the weights off, he said, Sir, and right away when like an 18 or 20-year-old kid calls you sir, you know it's going bad already. Like, I'm old, it's fine. Sir, he says, you don't need to take those weights off. I, I'm just going to add some weights to it. And uh, then you don't feel good about yourself. And his buddy's standing there saying, hey, you're going to make him feel bad. You shouldn't talk like that. And uh, he says, oh, oh, sorry. He said, you know, for a guy your age, you work out pretty hard. That was helpful, eh? For a guy your age, you work out pretty hard. I'm like, thank you. And his buddy said, that made it worse. That made it worse. Um, but language. Language is so important. And so trying to understand the language we use in this day becomes critical in navigating this moment. So if you read through the Bible cover to cover, 
and ask yourself, how does the Bible speak about itself? You'll find four categories. Sound doctrine in a number of passages. Disputable matters, again in a couple of passages. Unsound doctrine. And then finally, heresy. Those are the four categories you find in Scripture. Sound doctrine, disputable matters, unsound doctrine, and heresy. So what is sound doctrine? I'm just going to walk through this. Sound doctrine, some of the guiding principles regarding sound doctrine include correctly handling the word of truth from 2 Timothy 2.15, correcting, rebuking, and encouraging with great impatience and careful instruction from 2 Timothy 4.2, holding firmly to the trustworthy message so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine, Titus 1.9, and teaching sound doctrine, Titus 2.1. So how do you determine what sound doctrine is? Here are a few principles. One, scripture prioritizes the doctrine as essential. So in 1 Corinthians 15, you find Paul saying, for what I received, I passed on to you of first importance. That Christ died for our sin according to the scripture, was buried and was raised on the third day according to scripture. Secondly, it's, there's biblical clarity. Just both in the plain reading of the text as well as in the consistent doctrinal position throughout scripture. So, so there's clarity in this. So an example of this, let's say like stealing. The Bible never talks about stealing in a positive light. It's always in a negative light. Or, reversely, the Bible is very clear that the only way after Christ that one can be saved is through the work of Christ. Right? It's by knowing him. And so there are things like that. There's just biblical clarity. Thirdly, the weight this doctrine bears on the character of God. Most doctrines or doctrines are found, they come from who God is and his character and nature. We often miss this, but why don't you steal? Because he's Jehovah Jireh, the great provider. Why don't you lie? Why does God forbid lying? Because he's the God of truth. And so the requirements God offers in scripture are rooted in his very nature and character. They're not just arbitrarily given by God, kind of haphazardly and for fun. Four, the weight this doctrine bears on the proclamation or defense of the gospel. That was what was going on in Acts 15. They're saying, well, you need to be circumcised. Is there anything wrong with being circumcised? I mean, I bet this morning if I surveyed the room here, given that many of us are Western, a bunch of us are circumcised, right? And there'll be another group that isn't circumcised. Have, have, did your parents sin by having you circumcised? No. Did your parents sin by not having you circumcised? No. But when you're saying that you need to be circumcised to know Christ because it's the Old Testament sign... Now there's a different gospel. Now you're adding to the accomplished work of Christ. And then lastly, the effect on personal and church life. Does this cause you to be more like Christ or less like Christ? So disputable matters. So that's sound doctrine. Disputable matters. They are matters where Christians have the freedom to disagree, um, the freedom to disagree. What they believe or not believe on these issues or how they live out uh, or, don't, or how they live out or don't live out these issues has no bearing on whether or not they are saved. These are issues of freedom. But how do you determine what a disputable matter is? Because today, people are calling everything they disagree with a disputable matter, but there are some ways of discerning it. One, the fact that an area of doctrine is disputed doesn't make it disputable. Did you hear that? The fact that an area of doctrine is disputed actually doesn't make it a disputable issue. Lots of people are gonna say everything is disputable when they don't like something. But that doesn't make it disputable. Two, is there any movement on this issue in Scripture? So do you see any movement on it? I gave the example last week of divorce and remarriage. How God created man and woman. He created marriage. 
Moses allows for the issue of a certificate of divorce. Right? Jesus then narrows it down and says divorce only for adultery. Paul then gets into the whole issue and says, if you're abandoned. And so you've got to take a look at a number of passages and pull them all together hermetically to come to an understanding of how we view divorce and remarriage. I'd put this in a disputable matter category. Is the Bible silent on the issue? Is this an issue that the Bible doesn't say anything on? We just went through a, a whole bunch of protocols that the Bible's actually pretty silent on. But people would go to the Bible as their proof text. What does the scripture say about the issue and what is the connection to other issues? So what does the Bible actually say about this issue and how is it connected to other issues? And these are also really important. Is there evidence that this issue has been debated through church history or is it relatively new? There are some that you can go back and trace back. I've been reading two books on heresy. I've just finished them. And you can trace back some things right back to within a century of the apostles. Right? You can trace back some issues that we've debated over right then and there. But there's lots of things you can't. The whole shift in marriage is brand new. It's decades old. That should cause great hesitation. And then lastly, is the issue being discussed globally or is it local? Is this something that Christians around the world are agreeing is disputable or not? Again, that issue is what? It's only Western. Only Western. You go to Africa, Asia. You go to South America, Central America. That issue of, of what you do around the whole area of, of the affirming, non-affirming, not even being talked about. Why? Because they believe they know, like we would here at James Forth, what God has said. So you have disputable matters, and you need ways of navigating them. Here are some ways. And then, and then you have unsound doctrine. Unsound doctrine occurs in areas where someone has strayed far enough from the matter of sound doctrine in belief or behavior that they should be corrected, rebuked, or refuted. However, that would not be considered a false teacher. They would not be considered a false teacher or heretic. Some passages explicitly name unsound doctrine. Example, 1 Timothy 1 calls slave trading, perjury, lying, contrary to sound doctrine. It also talks about homosexuality being contrary to sound doctrine there. So, so here's what happens. The Bible actually says to us, here are some things that are contrary to sound doctrine. And the posture, whenever there's unsound doctrine, is refute, rebuke, or correct. So this with true city became one of the things that I agonized over. All of a sudden now, I'm in meetings where people are saying, well, Dwayne, I can assign the Apostles' Creed. So you can't say I'm a heretic. I'm like, okay. And it challenged me. So then what are you? If I think this is outside of what Scripture is teaching, if I think this is not biblical, and I do, then what are you? So as I agonized over it, and then it clearly says it in black and white in 1 Timothy 1, you're unsound in doctrine. So my posture as we gather then must always be to rebuke, refute, and correct your position. Must always be that, because that's what the Bible says it is. You find that Paul's rebuke of, of Peter fits in this category. I read this a number of weeks ago. I'm not going to reread it now. But this is in Galatians. I know for some of you this was brand new. Galatians 2, where Paul rebukes Peter... Because Peter has started to abstain from eating certain foods. But I want you to note some of the language here. In, in verse 1, I openly opposed him in public because he was clearly wrong. He was wrong. Um, he calls him cowardly. Uh, but verse 14, when I saw that they were not walking a straight path in line with the truths of the gospel. He makes this a gospel issue. In verse 14. 
And then the last category is heresy, blasphemy, and false teaching, where they tear at the essence of the gospel in belief or behavior, and, and these people are described as shipwrecking their faith. They are handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme in 1 Timothy 1. So that term, handed over to Satan, is used twice in Scripture, once in behavior in 1 Corinthians 5, the other for belief here in 1 Timothy 1. It is said that they have abandoned the faith they are teaching what they have learned from deceiving spirits and demons or false prophets, Peter writes, and they will secretly introduce themselves uh, or secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. So historically what would happen is someone would espouse something that people would agree with and they'd call it council. We haven't had a council called in a long time. A council would call and gather, and they would begin to determine whether or not what was being taught was sound or not. But we live in a new day. We live in a day where people think that if you call a council of people who all adhere to something that's similar in doctrine to determine whether or not the new thing you're hearing about is sound in doctrine, we're now bullying them. In fact, you can read this as you read some of these books on heresy. Alistair McGrath says this excellent book on heresy. He says this, for many, heresy is now seen as a theological victim, a set of noble ideas that have been brutally crushed and improperly suppressed by dominant orthodoxies and then presented as if they were devious, dishonest, or diabolical. In this romanticized account of things, heresy is portrayed as an island of free thinking in the midst of the torpid ocean of unthinking orthodoxy enforced more by naked ecclesiastical power than by robust intellectual foundations. So let me do a couple of things really quickly and I'll end. So what about unity? In John 17, unity is paramount. Whenever there's sound doctrine, whenever there's disputable matter, unity trumps. So whenever there's an issue of dispute that falls in the category of disputable matter, unity is paramount. But when it's unsound doctrine or heresy, it's not. When it's heresy, you're to hand people over to Satan. When it's unsound doctrine, you're to rebuke, refute, and correct them. You see this in the book of Philippians as a test study, right? In Philippians 1, some people are vying for Paul's apostleship. And in Philippians 1, Paul rejoices that the true gospel is being preached, even though it's from hearts that are full of envy and rivalry. But in Philippians 3, in the same book, Paul talks about false teachers. And he says, watch out for those dogs, those mutilators, or those evildoers, sorry, those mutilators of the flesh. He uses strong language. And then the passage goes on because they're spreading the word. Paul and Barnabas are going to go, and they have a disagreement about Mark. Mark, who writes the gospel of Mark for Peter. And they split. Barnabas takes Mark. Paul takes Silas. Later on, there's reconciliation. But this just shows you that, like, Paul wasn't Jesus. There's a debate. There's a dispute. Over Mark's previous abandonment with them, I talked about that earlier in Acts, they, they disagree sharply on it. And Paul, who's traveled with Barnabas, splits ways. And they go their separate ways. I, I, I don't think this should have happened this way. It's described for us, but it's described for us with language that I think shows us in the text that this isn't the way it should occur. But God uses it. And now you have two groups going out. One group taking the letter, the other group going out and explaining what had gone on. And then, curiously, after they've just said no one needs to be circumcised, Timothy joins in in Acts 16, and he gets snipped. He's a Greek. 
He'd never been circumcised, and now as an adult, he got snipped. Now, Paul's just been a part of the Jerusalem council where it says, you don't need to do this, and now he's doing it. What's going on? Well, I think it's from Corinthians, where Paul says, to the weak I'd become weak, to the Jew I'd become like a Jew. And he knows that Timothy not being circumcised is going to be a barrier for the witness. Now, it's only because they ask. No one's looking, right? But people are likely asking, oh. And he's like, no, for the sake of my witness, I'm going to be circumcised. And I'm going to allow that to not be a hindrance to the gospel. Jason, you guys can come up. So let me wrap this up quickly. So unless you're a Christian with your head in the sand, we live in a brand new day. We live in a day where, for, where classic historical creeds that were accepted for long periods of time have come into question. We live in a day where positions that have been held by the church since its inception are being called into question. And many of us are uncertain as to how to even navigate those waters. Our children are talking about this. Our friends are talking about this. People are all the time are talking about deconstructing their faith. I'm like, oh, sure. But use the Bible. Like, oh, I can't use the Bible to deconstruct my faith. I'm like, then you don't have faith. Like, what are you talking about? You can't use the Bible. It's the word of God. It's the starting point. I mean, God is the starting point, but it's second place. And so all of a sudden, we're in a brand new day where people somehow think that they can deconstruct them, their faith on their own and leave God out of it and not go to the Word. I always want to bring people back to the Word, always want to bring people, what, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about this issue? Have you read the passages? Have you walked through this? That's what they did at the Jerusalem Council. They looked at Scripture together. What does the Bible say about this issue? Whenever you're meeting with someone who does want to look at the Bible, and I face this numbers of times now. I, I told you last week, that was my first meeting with True City. We were told on this issue, we were told we're not allowed to use our Bibles in the first meeting. Not allowed to. We're allowed to talk about our feelings and stories. The Bible was banned. God was not welcome at the first meeting that we had discussing these issues. That broke my heart. But it's not uncommon anymore. And so I think we need to be able to think through how is the Bible... How does it talk about itself? Is this an area of sound doctrine whereby because someone's not agreeing with it, they should be handed over to Satan? Is this an issue of disputable matter where when I look at this issue, I go, okay, in understanding this issue, this is one where unity is paramount and I need to get along with other believers even though we're in disagreement. Is this an issue of unsound doctrine? And when it's unsound in doctrine, my posture must be to rebuke, correct, and refute. Because right now what they're believing is harmful for them and for those who are believing it with them. And then lastly, is it actually unsound in doctrine? Is it not unsound in doctrine. Is it actually heresy or blasphemy? And so we live in a new day where we need to understand these things well. I, I know I just walked you through a whole theological conversation, and I almost never do that here at our church. But as I knew I was going through the book of Acts, and knew I was coming to Acts 15 at some point, I purposely decided to spend two weeks on it. One week just to dissect the text, which is what I did last week. And one week, which is what I did this week, to say, so how do we do this? How do we navigate this? We're going to sing a song to worship our God. But then I'm going to come up and give some practical thoughts on this. Would you stand as we worship our God?